welcome to The Last We Fake, the podcast of serialized fiction from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Alan Rifkin. Each season, the podcast debuts an original L.A. novel in 12 episodes, along with selected short fiction from West Coast writers, both new and established, whose works take place at the shifting borders of the American dream. Season two's novel, titled Sunland by author, screenwriter, and journalist Charlie Haas, unfolds the brief desert flowering of a group of German expressionist artists, musicians, and free spirits circa 1914 who come to Southern California, the America of America, to start the world over. Here is this week's installment of Sunland by Charlie Haas on The Last We Fake. The proletariat of Europe cutting their own throats. That's Gerhard and ten others in the men's toilets trying to shave as the ship pitches on the first morning at sea. There's one metal mirror on the wall and everyone crowds around it, a tangle of elbows, mugs, and razors. When Gerhard grows a beard, he looks seventy and violent and there'd be dissolute stubble like Fredericks along the way. He gets out with two nicks and a slit, not the best in the room, but not the worst either. He takes his shaving things back into third-class married and family, a vast airless room crammed with three tiers of bunk beds. In the aisles, he ducks past people dressing for breakfast, fitting themselves into every kind of girdle and hairpiece as their children gape, mimic, and get slapped. At the family's bunk, Anna and the children are dressing. Jorgen, the Bible prophet one, comes over with his daughter Trudy. Are you people Catholic, he asks. Gerhard shakes his head. Communist. That won't help, Jorgen says. The Uzbeks over there have raisin wine. They'll take any kind of icon. A prayer card would do it. Sorry, Gerhard says. Did you bring your chessmen? Trudy asks Benji. I gave them away, he says. Communist, Jorgen explains to Trudy, and they walk away. Gerhard goes out on deck to breathe some air. The ship is as tall as the Kaiser Gallery, painted purple with Saxonia in yellow on the prow. He leans on the railing and looks at the upper decks. Sensible suits stroll past in second class, and foreshortened fine topcoats in first. Down here, people in international hand-me-downs make determined circuits, eyes straight ahead. He goes back in and finds the third-class dining room, where the color scheme is jaundice and bathwater. From the doorway, he surveys his new colleagues, two tables full of fanciful outfits with a canopy of long hair and feathers. The other passengers have left a row of empty seats on either side of them. Have you seen this menagerie? A voice next to Gerhard says. He turns, sees one of the men he shaved with, and says, I think I'll sit with them. Be serious, the man says. Gerhard shrugs. What's the worst they can do to me? He gets his tray of breakfast, hard cheese, a roll, stewed prunes, and coffee stretched with barley. Anna's sitting with the woman who scarred Benji for life by undoing her overalls. They wave Gerhard over. He pulls on a chair. It weighs 30 kilos, and he almost drops his tray. It's to keep them from sliding, Anna says. Gerhard, this is Frida. We're going to sew later. I'm making school clothes for Benji. She opens the County of Tomorrow brochure Manfred sent them and points to a picture of children outside a school. 
They want dark suits with knee pants, she says. But not a uniform, Frida says. That's already American. The boys in the picture look twice as big as Benji. They'll use him for a football, Gerhard thinks. When he finishes eating, he gets up, finds Benji eating by himself with two books open in front of him, and leaves his roll on the boy's plate. Manfred and Tilda are poring over papers at the next table. Gerhard, please join us, Manfred says. We're planting crops. Gerhard sits down. We need to get things in the ground before it's too hot, he says. Beans and tomatoes, I think. And corn, Tilda says. Maybe peppers. Look at this. She hands Gerhard a pamphlet with a colored photograph on the cover, a bulging tomato with water beating on its skin and leaves curled around its thick stem. It's a seed catalog from California, far fancier than the ones in Gerhard's childhood. He understands half the English. Sets fruit like crazy. Monarch of the limas. But the money's in the pictures. Voluptuous produce with straining stalks and deep-set carpels, like pornography for bees. Or for Manfred and Tilda. The pages are limp from rereading, with circles drawn around half the plants. Their strawberries are bigger than our apples, Tilda says. Of course they are, Gerhard thinks. And why stop there? With this catalog's trick photography and your trusting natures, you can have melons big enough to live in. There go your food and housing problems all in one. Did you bring tools, he says? Hose and hammers, Manfred says, in people's luggage. For bigger things, he passes Gerhard a thick book called Sears and Roebuck, The Great Price Maker. Where the seed catalog is prurient, this one is clinical, detailing every nut and screw on the little Jap cultivator and bonanza manure spreader. Hundreds of dollars in goods are circled in pencil. Gerhard closes it. The first thing we'll need is shelter, he says, a pole barn to sleep in. We should talk to Rose about that, Tilda says. How much money do we have? Not as much as we thought after the boat tickets, Manfred says. 660 American dollars. Have you made a budget? Yes, we're short, but we could forage for a while. And when these come in, Manfred puts his hand on the lying seed catalog as if to swear by it. Gerhard takes their budget back to his bunk and reads it. No matter what he cuts, he can't get under $1,280. He goes to single men's, which looks even grimmer than family, and smells like feet, mops, cigars, the sea, and its sickness. Men coming back from breakfast are knocking into one another in the aisles as a kind of sport. Richard's lying on a lower bunk, writing in a notebook. Gerhard stands over him till he looks up. Gerhard, he says, how's your crossing? Bumpy. According to Manfred, you said funds were in place. What happened to them? Richard returns his look evenly. The fares went up, Gerhard. You can ask the ship's bursar or whatever he's called. He'll explain it to you, colorfully, since you're in third class. He could be telling the truth or not, Gerhard thinks. It's a little late to wonder about it now. There's not enough money, he says. We had to get out of Germany, Richard says. It's like a burning building. You don't get to dress for that. I suppose people could get jobs in the town, Gerhard says. As if examining the idea, Richard says, Jorgen's getting a job in town. No, Gerhard concedes. Then we're called on to pull this out, Richard says. Gerhard waits a moment, realizes nothing more is coming, says thank you, and walks away. 
He runs into Manfred by the stairs, nods toward Richard and says, Is he any practical use? Manfred considers. He got me out of Berlin a few years ago. Saved my life. His expression's mild, but unshakable. They go out on the third-class deck. People are crowding the sunny spots, sitting by nationality. A caravansary of black dresses, balloon pants, headscarves, skullcaps, and vests with bits of mirror. They're busy with gossip, knitting, smoking, books, letters, chess, and parcheesi. But here and there, Gerhard sees the nervous glances of people traveling from one catastrophe to what they hope won't be another. Tilda's playing cards with three sailors at the base of a funnel. She folds her hand and leads Gerhard and Manfred to Rose and Frederick, who are working on drawings with a stack of books between them, some in German and some in English. California Chaparral, the mission style of building, farms and ranches of the San Joaquin. May we talk about shelter, Gerhard says. Please, Rose says, moving over. I have a barn. She hands Tilda a drawing of a grand one, with a stonework facade, peaked dormers, and a portico whose columns are stripped in polished redwood trunks. It's beautiful, Tilda says. Yes, Frederick says, putting an idle hand on Rose's arm. She gives him a cigarette and takes out more paintings, an even fancier henhouse than before. The yellow dining hall, a cornmill like a stone cottage, a greenhouse like the Crystal Palace, and a building beyond modern architecture, with corrugated steel walls and a bright red roof slashing up at the sky. That's the carpentry shop, she says. All to be built without powered machinery, sufficient materials, or money, Gerhard thinks. Fredericks put his cigarette down on the edge of the chaparral book. Gerhard picks it up before it starts a fire and holds it out to Frederick, who takes it from him without blinking. Here's the tool shed, Rose says. She leans across Gerhard to pass the drawing. The back of her neck is just under his face, with sunshine on its fine hairs. He's still breathing her clean smell as she sits up and smiles at him. Maybe I'm being too harsh about the buildings, he thinks. Some of them could be built plain with a kind of stage set on the outside. I could show her. He points at the dining hall. Do you have plans for that? Here, Frederick says. He digs through a paper bag, brings out three pages of rumpled notebook paper, and hands them to Gerhard. Thank you. May I take them with me? Frederick shrugs. Gerhard puts the plans in his pocket. The smell of Latakia tobacco drifts over from some Arabs by the rail, making him think of roofing tar and what it might cost in America. He goes to lunch by himself and starts to unfold Frederick's plans till Anna sits down next to him. I've had the best morning, she says, sewing with everyone. I talked to that Suzanne, the cello and the quartet. She and Jules came to Berlin last year for the Ernst Kirchner exhibit. She said they ran through the city to get there, and then the paintings were exactly what they'd just run through, if only she'd known how to look. These pictures of prostitutes with men hanging around them. And then Frida said she'd been up to his studio for these 20-minute paintings they do. The girl who models is 15. She lowers her voice. People make love in his studio, and he paints that. Anyway, a pause before news. I'm going to try and play with them. Frida asked me. She's the first violin. It's horrible practicing after this long. You feel like a gorilla. I'm going to try, though. Stop, Gerhard thinks. The happier she sounds, 
the harder it is for him to breathe. She has no idea of the work ahead of them, and her happiness isn't just joy. It comes wrapped in all the unhappiness that came before it. Unhappiness can live on a modest diet forever, but happiness eats everything in its path. It's not going to be like that, he says, not for a long time. We're going to need everyone clearing the land and getting crops in. No one's playing music yet. No, she says, stung. Of course, he lowers his voice. They don't know anything. They're expecting giant strawberries and who knows what else. I'm sorry, Anna says. He holds up Frederick's papers. I have to look at these plans. We have to see if all this can work. Yes, Anna says. He pats her hand, goes to a chair at the end of the table, reads Frederick's plans, and goes to single men's. Frederick's lying on his bunk, reading a book called Inca Psychology, Portal to the Hidden Plane. I've looked at these, Gerhard says, unrolling the plans. Do they meet your approval? I'm afraid not. These footers are off-center. The foundation could crack. Frederick closes his book and sits up. There aren't enough posts for the roof, Gerhard says, for the weight on the headers. Frederick looks blank. You have to know what the soil's like, what the tile weighs, how the wood compresses. These are too thin in any case. It will all come down. All right. Gerhard turns the page. Did you read about the earthquake at San Francisco? These are the kind of walls that collapsed. You have to put bracing this way. He sketches a truss. Or better, concrete with iron bars in it. He holds up the exterior elevation. We're on the wrong part of the slope here. Floods. All right, Frederick says. Do you want to draw them? I think that might be best. Fine. He lights one of Rose's cigarettes. You don't need to be competitive about it. It's not a sport. He leaves the cigarette burning on a bunk post and goes back to his book. Frederick growing to adulthood without getting murdered, Gerhard thinks. There's a story. I'd love to hear it some other time. He finds Rose on deck by a ship funnel, drawing a granary like a Greek rotunda. I spoke with Frederick, he says. We think I should draw the plans. Oh, good. I'm glad you two talked here. She pats the space next to her, but he stays standing. Can these people work, he says. Artists? They work harder than the upright townsfolk. Don't let the nervous breakdowns fool you. There's not enough money, Gerhard says. Money's not their strength. Tell them what you need and they'll find it in an alley. You believe in them. She nods. Don't you have people like that? I used to. That's sad, she says. Here. She pats the place next to her again. It's a tight fit between her and the funnel. Don't sit so close to her, Gerhard thinks. Remain standing if you have the least idea what's good for you. He sits. Blueprints weren't Frederick's gift, she says. He can ask what people want for their houses and sketch them. Houses? Everyone gets their dream house. A beer hall, an ashram, whatever they like. No, they... <clears throat> I was thinking of a pole barn first, then cabins. Square beams and planks. That's what you do in the woods. She shakes her head. If we're going to draw together, we have to dream. Cabins aren't dreaming. Look. She shows him a drawing of an orange adobe house with slate paths and cactus plants. Mine's Mexican. What about yours, for your family? I don't know. You come home from working, and what does it look like? She turns a page in the sketchbook. 
Her shoulder presses against his. Name a style, she says. Gerhard shrugs and feels the thick stitches of her sweater. Japanese, he says. If you're heading for ruin, you might as well have manners. Good, she says, and starts drawing. We could starve, he says. We won't, though, she says. We have you. In a minute, she's sketched a Japanese room with blonde wood and blue cloth hangings. Her pencil pauses, then moves again. A bed takes shape on the floor. Its cover's barely made up, as if everyone knows it's getting must again, soon. Benji walks out on deck with his book bag, sits down against the rail, and looks at a life preserver on the wall. That preserves you if you're drowning, he thinks. If you're heading for a desert with a bunch of human loose ends when you should be in school, it's no help at all. He gets out his English grammar book. Tucked inside it is a ten-fennig novel he bought to research California, Dusty the Wrangler Cowboy, published in Hamburg. The story's ridiculous. It starts with a train robbery, poisoned wells, and a range war, all in the first morning. Every illustration shows Dusty laughing with his hands on his hips, even when a gang of hook-nosed Indians tie him to crossbars and set him on fire. There are drawings of scenes that aren't even in the story, where women are shown with their skirts bunched up between their legs so the folds look like hair. Benji's thrown it in the trash twice, but gotten it out both times. Today he keeps it closed and reads from his English grammar, declining verbs out loud. I sell brooms. Yesterday I sold brooms. I am selling a broom today. A shadow falls over the book. Benji looks up to see a man around 30 in a high-waisted suit. He points at the book and says something Slavic-sounding. From the expression on his face, it seems like a request for help. Benji looks uncertainly at him. The man sits down facing Benji and gestures at him to go on. Tomorrow I will sell a broom, Benji says in English. To borrow high sell broom, the man says. No, sell, Benji says. I will sell. The man stares at him. It means... He stops talking, takes his comb and a fennig out of his pockets, hands the man the comb, then trades the coin for it. You sell, I buy, he says. He does it in reverse. The man repeats the words after him, a syllable at a time, till he gets them right. I comb, Benji says, showing him. I comb my hair with my comb. He points at a woman down the way. She combs her hair. Hi, comb! The man grabs the comb and pulls it through his hair, a disordered mass that starts high on his shiny forehead. The comb snags, pulling out hairs and keeping them. Benji starts to take it back by the edges, sees the man's expression, takes it fully in his fingertips, and wipes them on the inside of his pocket as he puts it away. The man holds his wrist out, wiggles his fingers over it, says something in his language, clasps Benji's arm, and hits the cover of the English book with his finger. I don't know, Benji says in German. He copies the wiggling. I don't know what that means. I'm sorry. The man repeats his speech louder. A sailor hears them and comes over. It's Serbian, he tells Benji in German. Do you speak it, Benji says. A little, the sailor says. A little of everything. He speaks Serbian to the man who does his speech in pantomime again. The sailor repeats it in German. I fix watches. 
I can fix any watch you have. He grasps Benji's arm the way the Serbian did. Take me. Benji pulls his arm free. It's a little eager, he says. Have you looked for work, the sailor says. The watchmaker thumps the book again. Benji hesitates, but the man seems even more nervous about going to America than Benji is. He looks up the words in his book. I can fix any watch you have, he says in English. Take me on. He leads the man through it word by word. After half an hour, the man says what must be, thank you, while nodding violently, and goes away. The next day he comes back with two friends, and the sailor brings a woman over. Italian, he says. Benji thinks. All right, he says, but they have to pay attention and copy the sentences down. The sailor translates. The people nod. They work for two hours. Benji helps the Italian woman with I can sew ladies' gloves and saves a bookkeeper from working with bees. After that, they meet twice a day. Benji's neglecting his own subjects, but it would be wrong to leave people defenseless in America. Even if Dusty the Wrangler Cowboy is a fabrication, the passages where people get hornswoggled by Sharpies are convincing. Soon he has eight students. He gives them a sentence in German. I am a clean, quiet tenant. The class translates it from Russian to Serbian to Italian to Greek. When it gets back to German, it's, In silence, I wash myself from your house. Benji says it the right way in English. They repeat it and move on to the student's own sentences. Does this place flood? How far is Wisconsin? I am a cook and governess. I want to start a strongman gymnasium. Eventually there are 14 of them, not counting the Sunland people. Manfred and Tilda come most days, along with Jules, Mother, Lily, and a few Benji doesn't know yet. Father comes once, and so does Richard, though his English is good already. One day, a Spanish woman from married and family says something and asks, The English? Paul, a Sunland man, raises his hand to translate. I can mend pots. He says it with a rueful chuckle, shaking his head, though the Spanish woman said it without inflection. Yes, he adds with a sigh. Pots. Manfred leans close to Benji and says, Paul's training is in the theater. Benji calls on Paul as seldom as he can after that, and doesn't give the other Sunland people much attention either. You don't have to keep coming to lessons, he tells Lily one evening. I can teach you when we get there. I like saying it with everyone, Lily says. She's built up a repertoire. I can deliver babies. I sharpen miners' drills. I am the only one of my family left. Benji teaches every day, till one morning a shout goes up, and his whole class runs to the front of the ship. He waits a minute before he follows them. He wants to see America as much as they do, but he wishes he'd had time to teach them how to count their change. Gerhard comes off the stairway and nearly gets run over by people racing for a look at New York. He works his way to the rail and finds Rose there with Frederick, just as the statue of the lady with the torch comes into view. A roar goes up in the crowd, but Frederick gives the statue an unimpressed nod and says, Publicity. Rose turns from looking at the statue, surprising Gerhard with a tear in her eye. Frederick, let someone think something nice for once, she says. Enjoy it, Frederick says. 
He walks away from her, and the whole ship cheers, because they're coming about, so it looks like the lady with the torch is turning to greet them. People who hunched around nervously through the voyage are crying, grinning, and waving little American flags. When they get past the statue, they applaud the skyline, colored black and white, as if everything that happens here makes the papers. The engines go quiet, their noise replaced by the anchor winch paying out chain. A small steamboat comes up next to the Saxonia, puffing oily smoke. Two men in yellow slickers stand on its deck, surrounded by canvas hampers as tall as they are. Someone shouts at them from above. Gerhard looks up and sees a second-class passenger waving money, pointing at his own deck and third class. The Saxonia drops two ropes, their hooks clanging against the side. The men on the little boat hook the ropes to two hampers, which jerk into the air and up the side of the ship. Two passengers and a sailor grab one onto the third-class deck, open it, and bring out stalks of ripe bananas. Gerhard looks up again, and the man in second class waves at him. The sailors throw bunches of bananas over the crowd. People catch them, laughing, and hand them around. Five minutes in New York, Gerhard thinks, and we're seduced by strippers, brazen yellow on a field of black wool. Anna and Benji walk up, bananas in hand. Benji peels his while staring at the skyline, tall buildings with advertisements for scouring powder and fountain pens painted on their sides. For a second, Gerhard's 18 and seeing Berlin for the first time, knowing one of the thousand windows must be his. A sailor comes through the crowd shouting, Bring your things on deck and wait for the ferry, in five languages. The passengers get their luggage, wait an hour, and crowd onto a barge. They're quiet now, some still waving flags, but nervously. They dock at an island of brick buildings too friendly looking to be a government's. In Germany, Gerhard thinks, they'd be decorated with Catherine wheels and rearing jaguars all in steel. Here, even the largest one could be a big post office or a small college. A country with nothing to prove, it says. Has there ever been such a thing? A man in a uniform calls from the doorway of the big building, Saxonia's inside, please. They follow him into a luggage room where a man checks their names and pins numbers to their coats, smiling specially at the children. Saxonia's one through 60 upstairs, please, a voice calls from above. On the next floor, a doctor takes 10 seconds to inspect Gerhard's neck and scalp, pull his eyelids back with a button hook, and send him behind a partition where the men wait in line to have their pricks checked for social disease. Jules nods toward the doctor doing the checking and says, he never forgets a face, getting a laugh from the other Sunland men. The immigrant in front of Gerhard looks alarmed, but no one's in trouble. Back in the main room, an officer checks Gerhard's papers and says, Final destination? California. By railroad? Ship. Show me your ticket, Gerhard does, and your money. You can change that for dollars downstairs. Are you married? Yes. More than one wife? No. Are you a socialist? Gerhard freezes. My name's on a list, he thinks. Do they deport or detain? Are you a socialist? The officer next to Gerhard says. No, the immigrant he's asking answers. The officer stamps the man's papers and sends him along. They ask everyone then, but why? It's not smallpox, it's an idea. 
one that's right in line with these friendly Jaguar-free buildings, the smile on the man-pinning numbers. Those are as socialist as I am. You'd like it, officer. I could send you some literature. No, Gerhardt says. The man stamps his papers and hands them back. He goes downstairs to a courtyard where the Sunlanders are gathering to leave. Lily's near the exit, where a uniformed woman sits at a desk with a telephone and a register book. Thank you for the courtesy you have showed us, Lily says to her in English from Benji's lessons. That's English, the woman says. That's very good. Lily smiles proudly. I can deliver babies. The woman turns stern. No, you can't, she says. That's not a fit thing to tell people. Lily looks stricken. One moment, please, Gerhard tells the woman and calls Benji over. She said she can deliver babies. Lily points at Benji and says, he taught us. What did you teach her? The woman says, her hand on the telephone. No, only the words, miss, Benji says in English. I I mean, there was someone who does deliver babies, and you don't want her going down the street saying that, the woman says. That won't go well. No, Benji says, "I I was teaching, and now I'm teaching you, the woman says. Do you understand? Yes, Benji says. All right, then, the woman says, letting go of her telephone. Welcome to America. The third morning on the second ship, Anna comes out on deck, falls into a long canvas chair and thinks, yes, all right, I'm going to live. Not that I was going to die on the Saxonia, but if there was a travel poster for that ship, the motto across the top would be, and don't come back. This McKinley, on the other hand, has clean sheets, portholes that let air in, and room to sew on deck without having your elbows in your bosom. They're steaming down the east coast of America in warm air and rainbow spray. The food changes every day, and last night there was pudding. Rose is busy drawing buildings with Gerhard every day, so Anna doesn't see her as much as she'd like, but she's getting to know the other Sunlanders one by one. At the moment, though, she's fascinated with the Americans on board and their cheerful goals in California farming chinchillas, trying out for the movies, or collecting their pensions from the middle of orange groves. Some of them wear traveling clothes so bright the Sunlanders look almost normal by comparison. Lily's met two sisters from Ohio who are teaching her to play jacks. Benji studies, sitting upright on a deck chair covered with books, looking at the water only when he's working a problem. Why don't you take a rest now and then? Anna asks him. I can't, Benji says. I talked to that man in the straw hat. He's from Iowa. He says eighth grade in America is as hard as university anywhere else. He says all the boys in his year could write a law, Greek wrestle, and make hydrogen sulfide. He says it's worth your life to get admitted. If it's that high flown, you should be pleased, Anna says. I should work, Benji says. Anna gets her sewing things and takes a seat in the circle next to Frida, whose two-year-old son Stefan sits between her legs, batting at the scarf she's knitting. Frida hasn't heard Anna play a note, but takes it as a given that she's going to replace the old man in the quartet. Should we try playing for people on this trip, she asks. Anna sticks herself with her needle, but says, Yes, that sounds nice. I was thinking of Vorjak's twelfth quartet, Frida says. Do you know it? It's when he came to New York and heard the Negro spirituals. So moving. I'll bring you a score at lunch. That afternoon, Anna opens her suitcase, finds her violin and bow wrapped in a sweater, 
takes them below decks and finds an alcove near the engines where she can't hear herself talk. The strings have been loose in storage for years. She calls the engine noise a G, puts her ear to the violin's sound hole, and tunes. The engines vibrate so hard the strings play themselves. She backs away just till they stop and draws the bow, one barely audible note, then scales, then Kreutzer exercises. If I could hear myself, I'd stop right now, she thinks. She opens the Vorjak score. The opening's simple, a pulse like crickets. Anna plays it six times, slowly and full of mistakes, before going up to supper. She sits with Jules and Suzanne while Gerhard and Rose take their trays to the oil drum they use as a drawing table. Gerhard comes to bed late. How's the work going, Anna says. Her ideas are perverse, he says. I'm trying to make them come true. By the time they pass Georgia, Anna can play the first movement of the Vorjak through, but soon it's too hot to keep the violin tuned, and then too hot to play. We'll try it on the next ship, Frida says. The sewing circle becomes a straight line in the shade of a stairway, till one day the thimbles and knitting needles burn their skin, and work stops. Lunch is cold soup. At dusk, the sailors bring out rope hammocks so people can sleep on deck. The next day, the ship slows down and threads its way through green islands to a pier. They're in Panama, soaked in sweat before they leave the boat. They lug their bags down a wooden dock made lacy by termites, past brown-skinned vendors offering fruit and pitying smiles. Gerhard buys lemon ices for the family. At the train station, they crowd into the shade of a portico, dog-breathing in the steamy air. Manfred comes over, points down a gravel road, and says, They're building the canal down there. Shall we look? Gerhard, Anna, and the children follow him down the road, the gravel hot underfoot and the air buzzing with gnats. Soon they're at a rail yard, where men are loading rock drills and water barrels onto trains. Six Negroes carry cases marked Explosivo on their heads. Benji puts his valise down, gets out his camera, unfolds it, and names the big machines in the yard as he photographs them. Excavator. Crusher. Busiris. Take me, Lily says, striking a pose. I'm taking the machines, Benji says. I'll be holding one, here. She puts her hand out flat, trying to give the illusion that a steam shovel's in her palm. Lower, Benji says. There. Lily gawks at her hand, as if the shovel's an insect that's landed on it. Benji snaps the photo. We should get back, Manfred says. They reach the station as their train pulls in, five old cars and a wheezing locomotive. The Sunlander's car is suffocating with powdery leather seats and a crate wood floor. They start out down a street of buildings huddled under eaves and balconies with American flags and slow-turning fans everywhere. In a few minutes, they're steaming through the jungle alongside the unfinished canal, glimpsing workers through the greenery. A sudden roar shakes the train. The lights go out, and Linda's scream cuts through the sound of something smashing into the roof. It's dynamite for the canal, Benji shouts, as dirt rains past the windows. When it clears, they see bamboo, flowering vines, and shacks on stilts just above the swamp water. Soon they're staring at groves of hibiscus, blue butterflies, gold frogs, and pink-faced monkeys. They come out of the jungle, climb a steep mountain pass, 
and cheer their first sight of the Pacific, steel blue and flat to the horizon. Coming down, they cross swamps of white mangrove trees, their branches spread against the sky and trunks dotted with yellow-headed lizards. Rose draws in her sketchbook, pastels flying as she looks out the window. When she finishes the picture, she tears it out and hands it to Lily, who gasps. Anna stands up and looks over Lily's shoulder. It's a cartoon of the frogs, monkeys, and butterflies gaping at the strange creature in the train window. Lily, can it be real? says a scroll across the bottom. I adore it, Lily says. Like a while-you-wait caricature, Anna thinks, except for that wild talent and the free flow of love. On their third ship, the blue of the ocean changes all day with the sky, and Anna can play her whole part of the Vorjak down by the engines. The quartet holds its first rehearsal in a storeroom, their chairs wedged between piles of life preservers. Frida's the first violin, Suzanne's the viola, and Joseph, still wearing his cape in the tropics, is the cello. First rehearsals are supposed to be bad, but it takes them an hour just to play the first theme together. Each time a note goes wrong, one of the women says, sorry, and Joseph looks at her with forbearance, even if the mistake was his. The days that follow are no better. One day Anna practices alone till her hands cramp, goes up on deck and finds Gerhard and Rose at their oil drum, Gerhard drawing in pencil and Rose in pastels. She looks up, smiles at Anna, and hands her a page from her sketchbook. Inside the dining hall, she says. The walls in the picture are sand-colored, with sheaves of dried flowers hung between windows. A brick fireplace and a serving window are framed in yellow tile. Round and square tables make a mosaic on the polished floor. Anna recognizes Jorgen and Tilda drinking coffee in late morning sunshine. It's beautiful, she says. It's a cheap trick putting coffee in it, Rose says, but thank you. Gerhard's drawings are the schematics, with the coal shine of dark pencil and that high-hipped lettering reserved for architects. He keeps changing everything, Rose says, just so it won't collapse. Or bankrupt us first thing, Gerhard says. We'll change it all again when we see the terrain, but we're practicing being disagreeable. Really, they're easy with each other, Anna thinks. It's easy being easy with someone you don't have to talk to about household money, say, or Benji. Still, he and I should be more like that. She goes below and practices for three more hours, but the next day in rehearsal she's late half the time and her double stops sound like cats. Joseph tries to give her cues, but sometimes they're when he nods his head and sometimes when he lifts it first. When Anna mentions this, he says, I don't lift my head and she sinks into the old misery of someone who shouldn't even try to play, but keeps tricking herself into it. Joseph's another one, she thinks. That's why we can't stand each other. Twice she makes the mistake of telling Gerhard about it. I don't see why you're worried, he says the second time. It's people who like you and these happy Americans, hardly a tough audience. I'm worried about the music, she says, feeling like an ass as soon as the words leave her mouth. Couldn't you just play softer than the others, he says. No, it's thank you, she says, and goes to practice. Anna's prayed the bad artist's rosary a thousand times. It's all right. I wasn't born with what the good ones have. It's out of my hands, and really it's enough to be anywhere near this art that's given me such happiness. It would be enough to be a bug on the windshield of an automobile, 
parked three blocks from a concert hall, where the program tonight is a lecture on phrenology, but there was an evening of list three weeks ago. That's all I need. But as many times as you pray it, you backslide, thinking something will change you. And that's why, like an idiot, she said she would do this. That evening at dinner, she sits across from Paul, the actor from Munich, who brought his dramatic interpretations to Benji's English lessons. He's reaching for a roll when his hand falters. Please pass, he says, but then his teeth start to chatter and he stops talking. Paul, Frida says. The chattering subsides. Yes? Are you all right? Yes. Oh, people around them turn to look. Paul, Richard says, this isn't, he pauses. Isn't what, Paul says, breathing hard. A theatrical? An exercise? It's... Paul turns on him, furious. How dare you ask me that? The Sunlanders stare. No, I'm sorry, Richard says. It's just the broken leg thing that time. It was so well done, we all... I gave up a career, Paul says. I followed you to that falling down place in the country. I worked and starved and got sick and lived under a rock. But no one takes me seriously. Everyone thinks I'm acting when I'm not, and that I'm not acting when you are. Don't tell me what I was saying. He grabs his own arms. His face is pale now with a sheen of sweat and the chattering's back. The Americans at the other tables turn to look. He's not acting, Rolf says. A sailor comes over, leans down and looks at Paul's face. That could be the dengue fever, I'm afraid. There's an instant shuffle of chairs on the floor as people start to get up. Not contagious, the sailor says. It comes from mosquitoes. In Panama, there are... How long do I have, Paul says. Usually a couple of weeks, the sailor says. Paul starts to cry. I mean, till you're all right, the sailor says. Oh, Paul says. Unless it's bad and you pass away, the sailor says. These fucking people and their new world, Paul says. He starts to say something more, but covers his mouth with his hand. A trickle of vomit leaks out. He gets up and stumbles out of the room. Richard and Rolf follow him. After a minute, the Americans go back to eating, but the Sunlanders sit watching the doorway till Richard and Rolf come back. Richard addresses their table loud enough for the room to hear. The captain came down, he says. He says we're stopping for supplies tomorrow at a town called Acapulco. It's a small fishing village, but there's a doctor. We can leave Paul there. He sits down. Can we stay with him, Suzanne says. Richard shakes his head. There's no money for it. We'd lose our tickets to California. There's just enough money for mules and supplies. I'm sorry. He shakes his head. They're putting him in a little room up on the bridge. They said we can sit with him overnight, one at a time. But, Anna says, when he's well, what will he do? We'll leave him a little money, Richard says, and the address in California. The Sunlanders look around at one another, unhappy but unable to suggest an alternative. Finally, Frederick goes back to eating. The others do, too, and conversation resumes at the Americans' tables. I can't believe it, Anna thinks. All that warmth and fellow feeling hiding in the woods and we are the promised illumined ones, and now we're going to leave one of us sick and alone in Mexico? She's about to ask if just one person could stay there with him, 
But you can't ask that unless you're willing to be the one, and she can't imagine trying to make up hundreds of miles with Paul while Gerhard and the children work to grow food. Besides, there's the Vorjak. In bed that night, she whispers what she's thinking to Gerhard. It's what I tried to tell you on the other ship, he says. These people aren't a union or a party, not even a family. If you're along for now, it's nice to see you, especially if you know how to build things. I'm not talking about the philosophy, Anna says. I'm worried about Paul. He may be better off, Gerhard says. Acapulco might be a nice place. It might need fishermen. Anna lies awake half the night. When she wakes up, Gerhard's gone, and the sky's lightning in the portholes. She dresses quickly, goes out on deck, and sees that they're at anchor in a little harbor where fishing boats are putting out. A few streets of small white houses fill the space between the bay and low hills. Anna hears something moving behind her and turns to see Richard, Jules, and two sailors carrying Paul on a litter, with a crowd of Sunlanders following them. She makes her way close to Richard and says, May I come with you? He asks the sailors, who nod. Anna falls in next to Jules. Paul looks worse than before, his head rolling around and eyes staring helplessly. Richard and the others carry him carefully, but he cries out with every movement. They call it breaking bone sickness, one of the sailors says. They're not breaking, but you think they are. Almost there, Paul, Jules says. Almost dead, Paul says. They carry him down some corridors deep in the ship and come out through a hatch where a lifeboat is tied up. The sailors load the litter into the boat's bottom, help Anna, Richard, and Jules get in, cast off and row to a rickety dock where a few fishing boats are tied up. People turn to look at them, but back away when they see Paul. The doctor's house is at the end of a sandy lane lined with shacks and palm trees. Jules knocks at the door, and a man in a white coat answers it. See, he says, then looks at Paul. Oh, oh. Dengue, Jules says. The doctor shrugs who knows, says Aki, and leads them to a side door. Inside is a tiny examining room where the sailors slide Paul onto a leather table framed by a crucifix and a caduceus on the wall. The doctor puts a hand on Paul's belly and sees him wince. Panama, Richard says. See, the doctor says. Richard puts some American money in the doctor's hand and some in Paul's shirt pocket with a slip of paper. This is our address in California, he says. If you write to us from nearby, we'll come get you. He looks into Paul's flickering eyes for a minute, then goes outside with Jules and the sailors. Anna stands by the leather table till the doctor points her out the door. The sailors row them back to the ship, just ahead of a barge bringing crates of food. When they go to lunch, the Americans' tables have been moved as far from theirs as the walls allow. At practice the next day, Suzanne says, They're not speaking to us, as if we brought it on ourselves. Joseph, straightening his score, seems to ignore her. I'll begin us, and then no cues today, he says. It can't come out any worse. Yes, it can, Anna thinks, but then they start. For the first time ever, it sounds like music. The cricket opening is clean, and from there they fall into the melody as if they could cover themselves in it. Anna has tears in her eyes in the lento. In the Malto Vivace, she sees what Vorjak must have seen, the warm-lit doorways of Negro cabins. She pictures them taking Paul in and getting him well. At least we can do this, she thinks. 
All it takes is a visit to death's waiting room, and we stop sniping at one another. It might even make the Americans cordial again. They decide to play it on the last night at sea, coming up the coast of California. That evening, the crew hangs colored lanterns among the hammocks. Anna wears her best skirt, pearls, and a lace-necked blouse, her hair piled up. It sounds as good as it did in practice, even better once they get underway. Anna tries to fix her eyes on her sheet music, but the Americans are right there, closer than a concert audience. She can feel their reaction, entertained, appreciative, interested, everything but swept away. When it's over, they applaud, a few stamping their feet. Then one of the men says something, and Benji translates, That was fine. That was the real elegance. Do you happen to know something? Benji hesitates, then tries for an equivalent. Bissig? The American man repeats his word. Snappy? Suzanne laughs, lays her cello aside, says, Jules, and waves her sweetheart over. Jules looks surprised, but people are clapping. He goes to his hammock, comes back with his concertina, stands in front of the quartet, and plays a jig, two rags, and a polka. He bashes away at the tunes, but smiles and throws his head around, and the Americans won't let him stop. All right, Anna thinks. That's what makes our peace with them. A jumble of chords and lots of repetition. That's what popular means, or have you forgotten? After a while, she goes into the crowd of dancers and pulls Lily out. What's wrong, Lily says. Nothing, Anna says, but we need to change for bed. They go inside and put their nightgowns on to sleep in the hammocks. The Americans come out on deck in long shirts or bathing costumes, grinning like children who've wandered from bed to their parents' party. Finally, the concertina stops. Gerhard lies down in a hammock. Rose and Lily take the one next to it, one head at each end, the soles of their stocking feet pressed together. Frederick sees Benji looking for a place and says, University, here, I don't snore or any of that. Benji hesitates, but gets in feet to feet with him, keeping his shoes on. Anna gets in with Gerhard and fits her front to his back, still telling her mind to be quiet about the music. There are quartets who leave people too transported to want two hours of jigs, but that's another life altogether. Let's bump mother and father, Lily says to Rose. Gently, Rose says. They make their hammocks sway. Gerhard's already asleep. When Rose's body brushes against his, he opens his eyes, sees her swinging away from him and says, Oh! Lily giggles. Shh, Rose says. She reaches back and squeezes Anna's hand, slowing her hammock to a stop before she lets go. When Anna wakes up, it's dawn, and they're in a harbor, smaller than New York's but crowded with ships. She slips out of the hammock and stands at the rail, watching cliffs come out of the mist. Soon everyone from Sunland is looking with her, too excited to talk. They take their luggage from the dock and follow a paved path through a rail yard, busy with near disasters, the trains just missing one another, and men with carts going straight toward men with crates. Lily holds on to Anna, shying from the noise and smoke, but when they come out of the yard, they're at the foot of a beautiful hillside town. White walls, red roofs, and palm trees climb the avenues. The haze gives way to gold sun and the smells of flowers and breakfast. An arch over the widest street says, San Pedro, Port of Los Angeles.
Oh, Richard, Suzanne says. It's like Italy. Better, Richard says. Let's see where the streetcar goes from. He leads them across the road. Even the modest houses are beautiful. Who gets to live like this, Anna thinks. Workday hedonists who retire to California every time they come home. A few of them stroll past the Sunlanders, saying morning with their faces up to catch the sun and see air. Gerhard points at a building up the hill, and Rose starts drawing it. This isn't a city, Benji says, but Lily's dazzled. They walk to a streetcar stop and put their things down under a mimosa tree full of pink blossoms. Anna can't believe she worried so much about the Vorjak. That worry belongs back in Europe, with rust and verdigris and flat wailing people in medieval paintings, not here in the light that falls on Renaissance lambs. Just look how happy everyone is to see it, Astrid and her sun worshippers most of all, like Catholics meeting Jesus without having to die. Charlie Haas's screenwriting credits include Over the Edge, Tex, Gremlins 2, and Matinee. His journalism has appeared in The New Yorker, Esquire, New West, The Three Penny Review, and Wet, the magazine of gourmet bathing, along with many other journals. Haas's previous novel, The Enthusiast, was published by Harper Perennial in 2009. Follow his Twitter feed at Charlie underscore Haas. Intro music is from the song Slow, performed by Sally Dworsky, written by Sally Dworsky and Chris Hickey, available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, and all other streaming platforms. Closing theme songs are Lullaby of Sunland, composed and performed by Ben Rifkin, and Trapeze Dress, composed and performed by Dean Chamberlain. Learn more about Dean Chamberlain and find Code Blue miscellany and touring dates by visiting therealcodeblue.com. Podcast art by Ryan Longnecker. Please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen worldwide. Also be sure to like and explore the Last We Fake Facebook page where you can find other items of interest including news, teasers, and podcast swag. Novel or short story submissions, as well as other inquiries, can be emailed through the contact page at www.alanrifkin.com. We hope you enjoyed this edition of The Last Week.